Uh, so good morning to everybody. Good morning to everybody on Zoom. Uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 11 today, 11, 1 through 18. So please grab a Bible or open up your Bible app. Uh, there's also some sermon notes, some handouts. It's got a lot of the same stuff that's going to show up on the screen. If you're a note taker, you like to fill in the blanks. I gave you some blanks. So, you know, uh, hopefully that'll captivate you if you're such a person. Uh, those are over there on the resource table. Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18. And I, I really just want to kick this sermon off by asking the question of why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include this story in the book of Acts? Now I'm going to read it. We're going to go through the entire passage through the, throughout this sermon, but I want you to be thinking about this. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include this particular story? We've, already, we've spent three weeks already on the story of Cornelius, the first Gentile, the first non-Jewish uh, convert along with his family, his household, to Christianity. So why did Luke then go one more step and, and have this story we're going to look at today where now it's being explained once again? So be thinking about that. Up to this point in the account of the book of Acts, the earliest Christians were Jewish. All of them were Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. Jesus, of course, was Jewish. The church was Jewish. It was the church in Jerusalem. And, uh, and these these Jewish Christians were focused on convincing their fellow Jews in and around Jerusalem primarily that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. That word Messiah comes right out of the Hebrew Scriptures, the anointed one of God. And so they went about preaching that Jesus was in fact this long-awaited for Messiah and convincing their fellow Jews of this who were very much... Uh, understanding of the Old Testament. They, they very much understood, they grew up on the Hebrew Scriptures. So they understood these passages they're referencing because, again, they were, they were Jewish. But the story of, of Cornelius, the centurion, it represents a shift in that strategy as God sets his sights on the Gentile world. You've got to understand there's, there's only two types of people in their reckoning. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. There are those who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then there are those who aren't, the, the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples. That's all the rest of us who aren't ethnically, uh, genealogically Jewish. And, and this would face some pushback. As you can imagine, this shift in strategy is going to face some pushback. And, uh, and so Luke's audience, because again, he's writing not very long after these events, maybe within a couple decades, okay? So as he's traveling around with Paul, learning about all these things and interviewing all these people, as we know he did to, to produce the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, he is wanting his audience, his readership, to be reminded that this was something that was happening according to God's plan, that this was God definitely doing something, and that it also had the support of the church leaders in Jerusalem. That was crucial you guys can understand this. As they start talking to more and more people, they need to know that this wasn't just some willy-nilly idea somebody came up with. This is something God was definitely doing in the world, and this is something that the leaders in the church in Jerusalem agreed with. And those early believers needed to know that the integration of Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, the church, was the right thing to do. This wasn't accidental. Again, this wasn't just somebody's thing. They just have a passion for bringing together Jews and Gentiles. This is what God had been speaking of and, and prophetically laying out this plan from the very beginning. They needed to know that. 
And all of this reminds us, as we think about the massive change, and we, we really can't appreciate just how massive it was to bring together Jews and Gentiles in that first century church. Like, like the, the Greeks had come through after the Persians, and before that the Babylonians, and before that the Assyrians. But the Greeks in particular, Antiochus IV had come through and sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. Like, these are not good. That was probably 150 years before the time of Christ. So these are not good relations, okay? So this is a big deal. And, and what that reminds us of today, whether, uh, whether or not we can, you know, that resonates with us, the Jew and Gentile, but, but it tells us that change is hard. And I don't have to convince anyone in here that change is hard. You guys all know it intuitively, right? You've experienced it. And someone once said this. They said, change is the only constant and... I mean, if you, if you take a materialistic, atheistic view of the world, where there is no God, everything's just the material universe, yeah, that, that is all there is, is change, right? Energy's constantly changing forms and all these things, right? And the universe is constantly changing, and things, celestial bodies are moving, you know, all these things. The, the tectonic plates are shifting incrementally. Like, yeah, so change is constant if you hold to an atheistic worldview, but as Christians— we understand that God and his word are unchanging. Like we bet our lives on that fact, that belief that God and his word are unchanging. His promises are unchanging. But we also realize that the circumstances of life are constantly shifting and changing. And guys, that is the tension that we live in as Christians on this earth in this life is that God and his words are unchanging Everything else is changing. Our bodies, relationships, geography, all these things, okay? And we have to live in that tension. And if you've been around Wayside for long, you know this to be true, right? Like, we started our public ministry uh, five and a half years ago. Uh, In September, we'll be six years old. And sometimes I feel like a six-year-old, you know, lacking experience and wisdom. But uh, probably acting like a six-year-old sometimes, too, if you're around me long enough. But over the past few years, it has not been easy to navigate so many changes in our church. Just think about when COVID hit, right? Like we've, we were meeting in a parking lot down the street, parking garage for months and months, you know, and that was after several changes had already taken place. So Wayside is a testament to the fact that stuff's always changing. But in these times of change, we're reminded of our dependence upon God. True. Amen. In times of change where everything feels like it's changing all the time, we have to go back to the one thing that's not changing, and that is God and his word. And we recognize just how dependent we are on him. Change is hard, especially when we've grown accustomed to doing things a certain way. Now, change is hard, period. But when you're in a, in, I, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but when you're in kind of a rut, you, you always do things the same way, you, you live in the same place, you do the same job, you do the same you know, routine when you get up in the morning. It's especially hard to change when you're kind of locked into a routine, when you have certain expectations for how these days, how these months are going to go, right? And then something changes, and that makes it especially hard. And that's where we can tie back into today's passage, I think. It's that the implications of the conversion of Cornelius— These massive ripples, these massive implications that rippled through the church of the first century and on till today, that these implications were massive. This change was hard because they were so rooted in their routines and their expectations. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's big idea is that we can't always anticipate what God is going to do on like a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-by-minute basis. Now, sometimes you can sort of 
anticipate, you know, God's leading you in a certain direction. But you can't always anticipate. Sometimes we expect God to go right and he goes left. And we have to pay attention and, and put our focus on God. Today's passage, it, uh, it tells us that because we can't always anticipate what God is doing, we must always hold loosely with open hands to our expectations of life and our traditions and our customs, etc. You understand? If you grab hold tight onto how you expect things to go in your life, then your fingers are going to get broken when those things get wrenched out because of the changing circumstances. And we've all been there. We've all experienced that. So we need to hold loosely to our expectations, but hold tightly to God in dependence. Today's passage begins with a very human response to doing something new. This is something new for them, so they're going to respond accordingly in a very human way in light of their traditions, in light of their cultural expectations. But thankfully, our passage ends with a worshipful acknowledgement of what God is doing in terms of salvation and the expansion of the church and the spread of the gospel. And we're going to see that transformation take place in just these 18 verses. So first of all, we need to focus on what people, uh, I'm sorry, we tend, this is our tendency, we tend to focus on what people are doing or not doing in light of our own expectations. And we all do this. We've got this this lens of expectations and we, we look at people through it and we're like, Are they doing what we expect them to do? Are they not doing what we expect them to do? And that becomes a mess. This includes our customs and traditions. Well, I grew up in this tradition. I grew up with these customs, right? And then we just suppose everybody grew up in those same traditions and customs. Look at this in verse 1 through 3, how this shakes out in the the early church. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 11, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem, In Israel. So they were throughout Judea. They heard that the Gentiles, again, that's non Jewish peoples, also had received the word of God. That received the word of God is just another way of they had a positive response to the gospel. They believed in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Okay? So they had received the word of God. Verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, and this may look different based on your translation, may say the party of the circumcision. Uh, This is not all the Jewish believers. This is a particularly conservative group of Jewish Christians, okay? Those of the circumcision. It says that these took issue with Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Now, you and I read that and we're like, so what? They had lunch, you know? Uh, the table fellowship between, especially for the conservative Jews, right, the, the, what they would consider the law-abiding Jews that stuck closely to their traditions, um, both written and oral traditions. This would have been a big deal, okay? And so they're like, you know, what, what's going on here? And in those days, they just simply didn't eat, the, at least the conservative Jews just did not share meals with Gentiles, Um, Their uncleanness, the unclean things they ate, the unclean practices that they had that weren't according to the law of Moses, that would have put in jeopardy the cleanness of the the Jewish people if they were to share table fellowship, which was a very intimate thing and still is today. And so a group of these more conservative Jewish believers, they take issue with Peter for breaking the rules and they basically say like, what's up? Explain yourself. Uh, We heard this happen. You got a response? And uh, and these, again, were Jewish believers, but they were having a hard time setting aside their ethnic and their religious and their cultural expectations. And don't get mad at them because you have a hard time 
I have a hard time setting aside those same ethnic, religious, cultural expectations. And this brings us to our next point. Instead of looking at things through our own lens of expectations and traditions, I'm not saying this is easy, but we need to focus on what God is doing. So instead of looking at people and what they're doing or not doing according to our expectations, which may or may not align with God's will and God's word, um, Instead, we need to focus on what God is doing in terms of his promises, in terms of his plans for salvation. And if we can do that, if we can keep our eyes on God, if we can keep our eyes on Christ, then we're going to be in good shape. Okay, let's look at that. In verses 4 through 18, we see how the early church moves from this rather limited understanding and application of the gospel. Had they received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins He rose from the dead. He offered them and they accepted through faith in Jesus Christ forgiveness of sin, new life in Christ. The presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit came into their life. Yes, these things had happened. Were they reconciled with God? Did he bring the gavel down and say, you're not guilty? Your sin was, my wrath towards your sin was poured out on my son. All these things are true. But they still had a kind of a limited understanding and application of that good news. They didn't understand the full implications of the gospel that they had trusted in. Okay, And so we see how they go to a much broader perspective. That's kind of what this is all written towards. And this happens as a result of Peter painting the bigger picture. Peter was a strong personality. And when Peter came up against these guys and they're like, explain yourself, he did that. He did in a very orderly, point-by-point manner. He explained exactly what was going on. And, And I call it this in my notes, that he painted the bigger picture for them. He helped them get out of their their cultural ethnic, religious traditions and customs and expectations and help to see the bigger picture that God wasn't shackled to that smaller focus, that limited understanding, but there was something much bigger going on, this bigger picture. So Peter paints this bigger picture of what God's doing and and then the church steps back to consider that bigger picture that one of their leaders lays out for him, this vision. So in verses 4 through 17, this is the bulk of our passage, we see the bigger picture of what God was doing. And I want you to just, I'm going to read it, but I want you to try and catch all the ways that God is at work as I read this section. Think of what God is doing versus what people are doing. All right? Both overtly and behind the scenes. All right, so starting in verse 4, it says, But Peter, so they ask, hey, explain yourself. It says, But Peter began and explained at length to them in an orderly sequence, saying, And then he recaps uh, almost verbatim these first couple verses. He recaps the story. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. This is clearly, he's not having a dream. He didn't nod off. This is a vision from God. And he says, in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky or from heaven. And it came to where I was, and I stared at it and was thinking about it. And I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild animals, the crawling creatures, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat, or slaughter and eat. Probably what, what he's getting at there, slaughter these animals and eat them. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Right? He's going by these dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. And he's been a, a, you know, like he says, whether he's exaggerating or not, he's like, nothing unclean's ever come in between these lips. 
And then uh, it says, but a voice from heaven answered a second time. What God has cleansed or made clean, no longer consider unholy. And then this happened three times and everything was drawn back into the sky. And behold, and would, that's kind of like, and, and like immediately this happens. And behold, at that moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea, which was just up the coast, uh, they came up to the house where we were staying. And the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brothers, he's there with six other Jewish men that went with him. He goes, these six brothers also went with me and we entered this, the man's house. That's Cornelius, the man. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send some men to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter. That's Simon Peter. That's the apostle brought here and he will speak words to you. Now, listen to this, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, so he's, he's sharing the gospel. And you remember we talked about this last week. God just interrupts him. It says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. He's talking about Jesus here. The word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is, is the word of Yahweh. Here it's being applied to Jesus because Jesus is both man and God. So here the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had predicted that. And therefore, verse 17, therefore, if God gave them, these Gentiles, the same gift as he also gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we looked at, he says this, if that happened, if God gave them the same gift who, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Did y'all catch all the ways Peter was emphasizing the activity of God? It's written like this for a reason. And I believe Peter spoke it like this for a reason. Think about all these things. God sends a vision. God voices a command to kill and eat. The voice from heaven is it's alluding to God, right? God is telling him, whether it's through an angelic mediator or not, God is saying, kill and eat in this. So God sends a vision. He voices the command to kill and eat. God voiced a response to Peter's objection. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Um, It was God who made the animals clean and holy in the vision. It was the spirit who commanded Peter to go without misgivings. It was God who sent an angel to Cornelius before the vision even happened with Peter. He sends an angel to Cornelius to have him send these men to go to go get uh, Peter Uh, It was the Holy Spirit who interrupts Peter's speech by falling upon the believing Gentiles. It was the word of the Lord Jesus that had predicted this spirit baptism during their three and a half year ministry, walking around with Jesus. Uh, It was and it was God who was giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. That was that was they received a gift. But the implication is that they received it from God. God's the one giving the gift to the Jewish Christians at the beginning, to the Gentile Christians now, it's God giving the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like he had done way back in Acts chapter 2. So Peter wanted the Jewish believers in Jerusalem to see things as he now saw them. you got to understand, Peter was in the same boat as these other guys. He was looking at everything through his little lens of, of traditions, expectations, the legal requirements of the Mosaic Covenant, the, the, the covenant under the law of Moses. He's seeing everything through this lens. 
So even Peter, who's one of the leaders in the church, is not seeing this bigger picture until the vision, the men from Cornelius, all the stuff we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. And then he begins to understand. And so now he wants these conservative Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to begin to understand, which is exactly why he includes all this emphasis. And this was nothing less than the work of God. That's what he wanted to get across. Guys, Peter just didn't, you know, was sitting around thinking, you know, it'd be cool. It'd be cool if we could take Jews and Gentiles and put them together in the church. Wouldn't that be a cool idea? Wouldn't that be neat? Wouldn't that be like, like hip and cutting edge? We could probably get more people to our church services, right? Because like, they'd be like, whoa, this is crazy and new. No, it's not like that at all. He wanted to emphasize the fact that this was absolutely God and nothing less than the work of God, that this was what God was doing. Therefore, they should not stand in the way of it. In fact, they could not stand in the way of it even if they wanted to. So Peter wanted the church to see the bigger picture of what God was doing in regard to these these Gentiles. And then in verse 18, we see the church, because now Peter's given this explanation to the church in Jerusalem, particularly these conservative Jewish Christians. And now they have to step back, and he's painted this bigger picture, and they have to look at this bigger picture and figure out what they think about it, okay? So that's what we see in verse 18. It says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. In other words, God had given them the opportunity and the privilege and the honor of participating in his grace, just like these Jewish Christians had from the the beginning of the church in Acts. He had given them repentance. That's the idea of changing your mind and changing your direction. Basically, repenting of your sin, moving away, looking away from your sinful, unbelieving way and turning towards Jesus Christ in faith for life. And life and repentance go hand in hand all throughout the New Testament. This idea of turning and this idea of receiving life. And life is usually associated with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and we have life eternal. And so that's what he's saying they now have. In other words, the Gentiles had accepted Christ and God then had accepted the Gentiles based on their faith. They accept Jesus Christ. God accepts them as holy and righteous and clean. They had received forgiveness for sin and new life through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Luke includes uh, this fitting conclusion because it's exactly what the rest of the church needed to hear. As this church expanded from Jerusalem through Judea to Samaria and on to the ends of the earth, this is exactly what they needed to hear. They needed to know that the primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem, including the Jewish apostles and the original leadership, the apostles and elders, understood and accepted that God was incorporating Gentiles as full-fledged members in the body of Christ. And that's not just some Gentiles, that's everyone. So now all of a sudden there's a new race, there's a new humanity. It's not Jew and Gentile, it's the body of Christ. It's this new humanity. It's, it's us being unified, brought together with peace with God and peace with one another through Christ and his work. Okay? He needed them to know that. The church needed to hold loosely to its expectations and traditions in order to focus on what God was doing in terms of his promises and his plans to bring the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, is that Acts 1.8. Uh, y'all probably don't think about this. I do. I'm a pastor. So pastors typically serve in one of two ways in the church. Pastor means shepherd, by the way. 
So you can shepherd in one of two ways. You can lead in one of two ways. You can either help start a new church, like we did when we moved down here to start a brand new church, Wayside, or you can become a leader in an existing church. That makes sense, right? A pastor can either lead a new church or step into leadership of an existing church. Now, here's the interesting thing. If that existing church is in a state of, usually it's, usually it's not plateau, usually it's in a state of decline in terms of membership and commitment and resources and all these things, okay? When a church is in a state of decline, the new pastor is going to be responsible for something that in the church world is known as, oh, and I'm sure your dad's probably talked about this a lot, Jake, uh, church revitalization. Church revitalization is, is what that's known, and it is very different than church planting. Uh, and I can speak to that from uh, knowing a lot of people that have done it. For one thing, an existing church has a what? What does an existing church have that a brand new church doesn't have? Culture and traditions. And my great-grandfather got on his knees and put that red carpet there in the sanctuary. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Right, you guys know what that's all about. Uh, it's, got a, it's got a culture, it's got a history, it's got expectations, it's got, we always do a living nativity. Why would we ever change that? We've always done that for 85 years, you know? And so that's what you, what you have in an existing church, for better or for worse, right? That could be a good thing, it could be a hard thing. But that means that there are certain expectations for how things ought to be. So several years ago, one of my good friends uh, who worked at a church with me up in Fort Worth, and he and I were both kind of in assistant pastoral roles. But I came down here to church plant with Wayside, and he took a church revitalization role down in Houston, outside of Houston. And um, we talked a lot on the phone. Uh, I won't tell you where it was or who it was or what, you know, because a lot of you guys are from Houston. You'd be like, I, would, I grew up down the street from that church. I don't want to throw them under the bus. But um, he, he goes to this declining church, and he and his family experienced, I mean, they got, it was like a meat grinder, okay? Like, they went down there, and there was so much pain of trying to revitalize the church by introducing change. Not even massive, earth-shaking change. I'm talking about just like, hey, what if we got, like, a more neutral carpet color? You know, <laughs> like, stuff like that. It's just, like, they felt firsthand the pain of, of what that caused. And there were certain power brokers in the church that had been in it from the beginning, and they weren't going anywhere. And when everyone else went somewhere else, they were going to still be there. And they were still there when he got there, these kind of these power brokers. And they wanted nothing to do with those changes that he wanted to implement. They simply, what did they want? He's a younger guy. He's got a young family. They lost all their younger people. What do they want? They want a younger pastor with a younger wife and younger kids who will draw in younger people moving into the neighborhood. Does that also mean they expected a whole lot of change? No, they expected the pastor's age to change and then that would, you know, that would bring about the relief and they would go back up and to the right, okay? So they weren't interested in the changes and they resisted making any changes that would actually appeal to a younger demographic to the people that were moving into the neighborhood around their church. They resisted those changes, which is what my friend was trying to do. And I think this is a really good example of how hard change can be, even in churches, even in local churches. It was hard for the early church in the book of Acts, and it's hard for churches today, even a church as young as Wayside. But today's passage, folks, it helps us understand how we can learn to embrace change in light of the bigger picture of what God is doing in our congregation and in our community. 
Can I say that one more time? Today's passage helps us understand how we can learn to embrace change, even if it's hard change, in light of the bigger picture of what God is doing in our congregation and in our surrounding community. We can't always anticipate what God's going to do. I don't know in a couple years, much less a couple decades, how this neighborhood's going to change or how this part of Austin's going to change or whatever else. So we must hold loosely to our expectations and our traditions. And maybe I could also say our forms and our strategies. Hold loosely to those things. Not the biblical functions that we're supposed to, to fulfill as a church. I'm not asking you to give up on those. In fact, if I give up on those, you get me out of here. You find a, a younger preacher or something, or at least one that's more uh, doctrinally orthodox. We're not changing what God told us, what Jesus commanded us to do as a church, but the way we do it, the forms and the strategies, we can hold loosely to those, okay? So let's apply this to Wayside in our remaining minutes. What if the demographics of our congregation shifted dramatically? I have, Stacy and I have a lot of friends from India who live in our neighborhood. There are a lot of sweet, amazing Indian families, some of them Christians, some of them Hindus, some of them other. Um, but what if, what if those Christian families started coming to our church and they brought their, the, the grandma and the grandpa that live with them in their house um, because they're a multi-generation family? Or, or what if many of these Hindu families started coming to faith in Christ and coming to our church because we're the church in their neighborhood, right? Would we just say, all right, guys, we know you're, you have certain cultural expectations, traditions, familiarities, inclinations, uh, dietary preferences, all these things, but yeah, we're just going to keep doing things how we do them. And if you could just adapt to us, that would be great. Like, that's not the loving thing to do, is it? No. That's when you get like the kind of the cookie cutter effect where it's like everyone that likes the kind of music you like, reads the same books you read, talks about things the same way that you do, grew up with the same traditions. That's who forms your church, right? And if you're a big enough congregation, you can get away with that. You don't realize how many people are leaving because they're not part of that 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 cookie cutter, you know, but we would notice that here at Wayside. So what if the demographics of our surrounding community shifted dramatically? Would we simply uproot and look for some land out in the exurbs or the suburbs, look for a relatively inexpensive piece of land that we could build a building on and have a building campaign fund and all these things so that we could get closer to people that are more like us, generally speaking? If generally we like a certain kind of music, if generally we look a certain way, could we just kind of go up and move to try and get closer to folks? No. Or would we embrace the necessary changes to accommodate what God is doing in and around our church? Because that's the harder road. That is a tough row to hoe, okay? When you actually go, God has placed us here sovereignly for a reason in this neighborhood, in this school, with these people living in these apartments and these neighborhoods, participating in these extracurricular activities, and you actually look at that and go, okay, God, we're here. Here I am. That's one of my favorite things in scriptures when he says, Samuel, Samuel. He's like, here I am, Lord. Like, would we not say, here I am, Lord. How do you want to use us? And then hold loosely to those expectations. And this is where the crucial biblical concepts, we've talked a lot over the fall about church membership, a commitment to a local church, church leadership, the role and function of church leadership. These things become so crucial uh, in a context like this, where you're forced to embrace change or to at least acknowledge change. Like Peter in today's passage, God often prepares the hearts of church leaders, not that it doesn't come through suggestions from congregants, 
But oftentimes it's the church leadership that, that has to ask these questions and say, hey, we're noticing some shifts demographically. We're noticing some uh, differences here and there. How can we adjust? And so oftentimes, like Peter in our passage, the, the, the hearts of the church leaders are, are led to embrace change. Uh, I'm sorry, he prepares the hearts of church leaders to first embrace change by giving them a glimpse of what he's doing, just like he did with Peter. Because remember, Peter was in the same boat. He needed that vision. He needed that God speaking into him, reminding him over and over again, you know. And then those leaders can cast a vision to the congregation, which will either be received or resisted. And why would that be received? It would be because the congregation trusts their leadership. They trust that they're humble-hearted, prayerful people that, that are making these decisions, not flippantly, but, but seriously and earnestly. And it's not just trust. Why else would they receive it? They would receive it because they realize that everything's changing all the time and they're holding loosely to those expectations, right? Now, why, would, why wouldn't a congregation, why would a congregation resist that vision for change? Well, one is if they don't trust the leaders, they're not going to go along with it. If they think, yeah, these guys are kind of finicky, flippant, capricious people. Uh, I don't know that I can trust them in this. I don't know that I can follow them as they lead out on this. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, if, if the change is just really hard, if it's so hard, I mean, I'm, I'm not even joking. If it's so hard to change the carpet color because your grandfather paid for it and had it installed and now there's red carpet in the sanctuary or pews, getting rid of the pews because you grew up on those kneelers in those pews, right? Like this actually happens. And if that change is too hard, it will be resisted at the congregational level, okay? Too much change can lead some to search for a more comfortable church setting, especially if they never really trusted the church leaders in the first place. If you start making changes, you'll see people will bounce because it's not comfortable. And if you don't have that nexus of relationships, that web of relationships and community, you don't have a strong enough uh, communal context to, to keep you persevering through the changes, okay? Change is hard. I'll I'll finish with that. Change is hard. But we need to recognize that change is part of what we're called to as Christians. Guys, I can't get up here on a Sunday. I can't send out an email that says, guys, thank the good Lord. You found the church that's never going to change. Oh, wait, it needs to change? Okay, well, we'll make those changes and then we'll never change, right? First, let's bring back nursery and then let's never change again, okay? Because we need the nursery. Praise God for the nursery. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dahlia. Um, but I can't promise that. It's, it's not that we need to just change for the sake of change. And I've known people like that. It's like, oh, this is getting kind of boring. Let's just mess things up and disrupt things and, and, and introduce change into the equation. That's, it's not change for the sake of change, right? But we need to stay attuned to what God is doing. And how do we do that? It's through humble-hearted prayer so that we don't miss the bigger picture and these opportunities for growing our faith and going out to others with the hope of the gospel. Guys, we need to pay attention to God's word. We need to pay attention to the context in which God has placed us. You need to pay attention to where he's put you for that job. Who's sitting in the cubicle next to you? Who just moved into the house across the street? Like we need to pay attention to these things and then with humble hearts, put that before God and say, here I am. Both individually, as individual families, as individuals, but also as the church family. And if we do that, I don't think we'll miss these opportunities, not just to get the gospel to others, but to grow our own faith as we trust God through change. 
So let's hold loosely to the things of this world so that we can be more and more aligned to the heart of God, especially when he leads us to change. Um, Next week, we're going to see the implications of the church embracing this Gentile evangelism in the founding of the church at Antioch. And I love this passage. It's where we see, uh, you've probably heard of this before, but it's where they didn't know what to call them because now all of a sudden you had a church that's filled with Jews and Gentiles. And they're all together. And they're like, well, we can't call you Jews and we can't call you Greeks or Gentiles. What are we going to call you? Hey, I know, let's call you Christians. And so that's the first time we see that term Christian used to describe the church because frankly, they couldn't come up with anything else to call them. So they call them followers of Christ or Christians, okay? We're going to look at that next week. It's going to be great.